Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. Yeah, we're uh, away at a race right now, which is good. Good to be back on the road and away at things. I tell you what, this has been a month or like a month and a half block of of racing and being at events again. And I, I don't even know what what time of day it is, what day it is. Well, I don't know how you're doing it, but uh, I'm here for this one. So I'm not really sure how I'm good. doing it either. Uh, yes, we're in Quebec for Quebec Mega Trails. I'm doing the 80 kilometer race tomorrow morning. Uh, and it's actually pretty funny. The When I look at the course profile, it bears a startling resemblance to the Western States course profile, just obviously uh, 50 miles instead of 100. But it starts with this massive climb up the aptly named Le Massif, right. uh, compared to how Western States starts with the climb up the, the ski hill in Tahoe. Okay. Uh, and on the note of Western States, obviously, listeners know I was there last weekend uh, supporting our good friend Karen Holland as she went for her Western States belt buckle. It was a long day on the trails a hot day on the trails but uh we, we made it through okay and listeners may not know that you were there or what it is so do you want to give us a quick rundown of, of what western states is absolutely yeah so western states uh if you're not an ultra runner or you haven't read i guess actually chris mcdill doesn't talk about it a ton in born to run he focuses more on the leadville 100 but western states is one of the oldest hundred milers in the u.s um and similar to how leadville has kind of that allure for bike racers i would say western states is that race for ultra runners it's sort of if you had to pick a world championships for ultra running more so than any official world championships western states is it uh it's also hot it starts at altitude it's actually a net downhill race which is like not that common but after you do the first couple of climbs it's pretty much descending from mile like 40 onwards mile 30 onwards uh, and it's it's a race that has just a ton of unique challenges, and that's what makes it so interesting and so inspiring and awe-inspiring, for sure. Uh, and people try for years in the lottery to get in. I think Karen was in the lottery for six years. And to get in the lottery, it's not that you just purchase lottery tickets, obviously. You have to race a 100K, 100-mile qualifying race in order just to get a lottery ticket to potentially have the chance. Right. Okay. So, yeah, big honking big deal and um, then you can also win a race to get into it i think yeah, too right like a win called, a qualifier yeah those are called golden ticket races okay uh very charlie and the chocolate factory gotcha. um, yeah so today we're not gonna necessarily do a race report on western states because i know most of our listeners are not really thinking about 100 mile races and if you do want to hear about 100 mile races you can go back to when we talked about one back in february very different context though that one was very cold this one was very not cold uh, but I did feel like getting to be in the aid stations and crewing and then running at night gave me some really good insights into dealing with long races, dealing with really hot races, altitude, and just races where stuff is just constantly, not even going wrong, but going sideways, we'll say, where you're just kind of always readjusting, reevaluating, checking in, uh, you know, making tweaks. It's, you know, like any really long bike race, too. 
So I thought we might have some some good takeaways from sure. What yeah, I, I mean, exercising there. or moving for an extended period of time has a lot of commonalities, sort of regardless of of what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. So the first thing we'll start with, I think, is going to be the obvious one: heat. Uh, you know, so temperatures at that race can easily get to over a hundred degrees during the day. You're in areas with very minimal shade. Uh, it's basically it feels like you're just baking in these canyons. Uh, in the Tahoe to Auburn area of California. So it might even, like, it, it's 100 degrees, but it feels like 120. Right. It's brutal and it's dry. No, but it starts very cold? It starts moderately cold. Like, people are not starting in jackets. You might stand on the start line wearing one that you'd pass off, but not even a lot of people do that because you're almost, because the race starts at the bottom of a hill and you climb right up, you're actually better to start a little bit cold than you are to start nice and cozy because you're going to get warm pretty quick no matter how casually you plan on taking sure. the, the first hill. And I always find it's a bit of a, I, I find it quite challenging, but the trying not to overdress because you're cold for you know the 10 minutes or 20 minutes standing at the line. Um, yeah, so I think, I guess the tip number one is if you don't have someone there who can just take your coat at the start line i think the tip number one is if you if you're in a hot race you know it's going to get hot right away i think just start chilly and they say this about running in the winter time too even biking is you're going to start a little cold mm -hmm. you're going to warm up don't panic about it yeah and you see different tricks where people will have you know t-shirts or i guess sweatshirts more that they leave just at the start line um yeah and you can always check with races a lot of uh big marathons actually do that where they have con uh donation bins and you can wear you kind just of a drop it as you ride by or run yeah, by wear okay. an old sweatshirt and then the clothes actually go to like youth running stuff so it's actually a pretty cool thing so check on that if you're one of those people like peter who's always cold i know new york marathon is big on that um, what I did notice, though, is, you know, as I'm watching some of the top pros coming through these aid stations, sun sleeves, you'll be happy to know, Peter, were actually super popular at this race. Okay. Uh, it was like the ultimate in triathlete chic where everyone had sleeveless on with sun sleeves. Uh, but everyone was loving them for the fact that you could cram some ice cubes down them. You could even just wet them at every aid station. And, you know, as opposed to just wetting your arms, the sun sleeves are going to stay wet and actually keep your skin cooler for longer as you're coming out of the aid stations. Did you get a sense? I know some runners use them for compression. I would not say that was what anyone was doing. And I didn't really see a lot of compression socks either. Okay. We're coming out of that trend, are coming we? Coming out of that trend, yeah. So sun sleeves were definitely a big one. And also, I mean, just from sun protection standpoint, like the sun was brutal. Sure. Um, I would say I actually also noticed a lot more people wearing brimmed hats versus wearing sunglasses, which is... Uh, you know, you kind of see a mix of both in many hot races, but I think for a race like this, everyone really wanted that sun protection and wearing sunglasses and a hat is definitely difficult. I don't, I probably wouldn't do it. Why? It just feels like a lot on your face. Oh. Uh, I was just thinking with the sun sleeves, the other thing is when it's really hot, it is nice to have something that you can sort of wipe your face with. Oh, Definitely. Yeah, it's actually funny. I, I realize I always run in long sleeves and I notice whenever I run in short sleeves or sleeveless, I am noticing that I can't like wipe my nose or, you know, just wipe some sweat out of my eyes or anything like that. And it, it really does make a mm -hmm. big difference. For sure. Yeah, so I was actually like pretty iffy about what I would wear for this race tomorrow, the Quebec Mega Trail. And I think I'm going to go long sleeves, just a light color though. So I will say everyone's wearing white sun sleeves 
and a lot of like lighter colors, definitely really lightweight fabrics. Um, so I think you have to be careful when you are getting the sun sleeves. You don't want to get the the super cheapy ones that are kind of that heavier, thicker material. You definitely want something pretty thin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they're they're an awesome idea. Um, and then the other thing everyone is doing was just, I mean, this race has 80 pounds of ice per runner. Like that is how much ice is available on the course. So, you know, you're not going to have this in every race that you do. But if you do have a race where there are crew or there is ice at aid stations, uh, just really highly recommend taking advantage of it when you can. Um, People were shoving it every nook and cranny. I saw guys shoving it down their pants. Uh, Women were shoving it down their sports bras. Most people, if they had a pack on, they'd shove it down the back of the pack. We quickly found out that the mistake is uh, when you shove it down the front of the pack or volunteers would shove it down just like the most accessible pocket in your pack. But then it's not actually touching you. Sure. So you need to be careful when you are shoving it down your pack that it goes down behind your hydration bladder so it's actually making contact with your skin. Otherwise, it is not very helpful at all. Okay. Did you see the ice sock around the neck or was that more of a cycling that thing? That is a cycling thing. It's really funny the amount of people that were doing these like ice bandanas or like they'd have these like a uh, couple of people I saw had these gel, like gel bead filled necklace type things that like go around your neck, basically like an ice sock. And if you wet them, they cool again, some kind of weird coolant thing in them. Um, I have to say, I feel like they're more just extra weight i would definitely go ice sock and pantyhose but that definitely hasn't gotten to the the runners yet well with the loose shirts and um, it's trickier to shove it down for sure now this is where i'd say women have the advantage because you can tuck it under your sports bra Uh, and the other thing would be if you had a pack you could shove it down behind your pack okay and then i know in running the hats really they're throwing it in underneath the hat i saw a guy wearing an ice hat and he looked like dr seuss or like a dr seuss character because he had so much ice in it that the hat no longer like was down on his head. It was literally perched on top of his head. And as he ran out, it was just like falling off. So cat in the hat, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So maybe uh, the ice hat seems like a nifty idea, but just be aware. Um, I think a lot of those ice things, though, you do have to be really cautious with them because, I mean, A, they're just extra stuff that you're now going to own. And how often are you going to use one of them? Um, And then B, like, how much extra fabric are you then carrying around with you? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because that hat has basically like a bag on top of it like it's almost a two-layer hat okay so you fill the top layer with ice and then it melts into the hat but really what you could do is just you know so you dr- dump your hat in the ice put a couple ice cubes in shove the hat back on your head it's gonna be a little weird feeling for a minute but it's gonna pretty quickly start melting mm-hmm. yeah i think just being aware that a lot of these clothing clothing stuff that's marketed as like ice clothing or whatever does come with the extra fabric costs so you do have to weigh how often am i actually going to get ice do i actually need the ice is it better to just have thin layers on and kind of deal with maybe pantyhose or something like that that won't fit quite as perfectly but will give me the same ice bang for my buck well, and I think I'll try and find there's a Trent Stellenwerf and Co. et al. Uh, study recently around the Olympics and that sort of thing of just sort of a review of heat adaptation. And so much of it is on the front end actually adapting to heat. Uh, and then I think it was cool drinks is a big piece of it. So just making sure your water is, is cool. Uh, yeah. And then the other stuff can help, but it's definitely not nearly as effective. 
Yeah, the other thing I saw was uh, there are a few people who did ice vests, even for just a small chunk of time. Uh, again, Western States has 21 aid stations over 100 miles, so there were opportunities that they could do some of the harder sections wearing an ice vest and then take it off and drop it at the next aid station. Again, that might be like a very high-level pro tip. It's not necessarily something I would put on, you know, someone who's just finishing for, for the sake of finishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you probably don't need to buy that. You could probably finagle some kind of ice vesty kind of situation. Uh, but just, you know, I noticed that was what a lot of the, the top pros were doing. They were also, as soon as they came into the aid stations, the next topic I wanted to talk about was aid stations. As soon as they came in, they were, you know, boom, they got sprayed with water. They were putting like freezing cold towels that had been like soaked in cold water around their neck while they stood there and like took in some extra calories, got their packs filled etc there was never a moment where they just stood there without doing something i think that was like the big key was as soon as they came in they had something cold on them or they were getting sprayed so they were taking care of like trying to cool off their body from the outside they also would immediately start drinking those really cold drinks take advantage of the fact that you have ice water right here uh i was absolutely so excited when the, the lead woman came into Robinson Flats and started chugging a Mountain Dew. I was like, this is my people. Um, so shout out to her for, for doing that. Uh, but really, like, you need to come in and have that kind of plan going where you're just not standing there sort of looking around, uh, just kind of feeling a little confused. You want to go in knowing, like, okay, this is boom, boom, boom. This is what I need. Um, so come in relaxed, but keep it moving. Um, and then I, I put always be eating slash drinking, uh, at the aid station, you have this chance to talk to your crew, talk to the volunteers, you're getting your, uh, water filled from your pack or your handhelds. You have time to put more gels or whatever into your pack, but you should also just be eating and drinking as you're doing that. You shouldn't just be standing there. Standing is like, that's the best time to be eating comfortably because as soon as you start moving again, eating is going to get a lot harder to do. Sure. So, yeah, especially for the run, like a running race, I guess, specifically. Yeah, yeah. So I, I also saw every, pretty much everyone, pros included, you walk out of the aid station, but you get going right like as soon as you can. So even if you're still kind of getting through a gel or a bar or whatever, just walk out with it. Just kind of keep that, keep that train moving. Uh, I wrote down what I noticed was races aren't lost in aid stations, but they're not won in them either. So, you know, you can take your time in an aid station to get your business done. You don't want to leave the aid station and realize that your pack is empty, right? But at the same time, you don't want to sort of putz around and dilly-dally and chat with your crew. Well, I guess on the split side, there's going to be a big difference. Like, I, I imagine the people at the front would not be stopped very long at all. You know what? Surprisingly, like, they were stopped for a couple of minutes at, at a few, every, not at everyone. Right, that was actually okay. my next point is that not every aid station needs to be a full NASCAR pit crew change the tires. Because um, I got to see a couple different aid stations and I would say like Robinson Flat, which is like the first big aid station at mile 30. You can have your crews there. I'd say mostly elite runners actually sat down or like stood with their crew for between two and five minutes. Okay. Some but that people, was a third of the way through the event. That's a third yeah. of the way through the race, yeah. And they would do the same around Forest Hill, which is at 60 miles. Sure. Uh, and then, you know, they keep going. And all the other aid stations, they're pretty much just grab and go. And they're probably doing, like, pack switch over or if they have to do shoes or something like that, too. Um, whereas in cycling, maybe there's, like, a, a tune-up or a re-lubrication of the chain or 
anything like that, I guess you're attending to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that's sort of my main takeaways for aid stations for long races. And I would say the same thing applies to bikes. I mean, we see this in gravel races all the time. It's so tempting to hang out at those oases, oasises for, well, did you see, I guess you must see that with the, and it must be a difference, but you must see most of the top people are fairly uniform and, you know, as you say, two to five minutes, maybe at a few of the aid stations and then otherwise walking through them. Mm-hmm. But then there must be, as you get further and further back in the pack, there's probably some people who are quite dialed and have their checklists or whatever and are two or five minutes, even though, you know, they're behind. But then you must also have the like 50 minute stops or. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Especially if the wheels are coming off. Um, and I mean, sometimes you just, you have to sit and kind of collect yourself for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think really that like, that's where that relentless forward motion idea sort of comes into play. Like sure. it's so tempting to sit down, but I think, you know, if I look back at my own hundred miler, like long race, I think I sat down the one time just to change shoes and I popped right back up again. And by the end, when we were coming through aid stations, like I was like literally marching in place because I did not want to stand still even while we just did a quick pack change. Sure, sure. Uh, I had a question, and I'm blanking on it now. Um, well, maybe you'll think of it. Yeah. <laughs> the other note that I made as far as just like the stuff and aid stations is that just remember that stuff that you carry is going to feel different uh, throughout the day, right? Like the pack that feels great for a two-hour run or a two-hour ride could very well start feeling very annoying at hour 10. You know, you're getting weird chafing in spots. So I think being cognizant, you might not be able to test your pack for 15 to 20 hours before the race, but I think being aware of that and even having sort of some contingency plans, uh, you know, Karen had some kinesiology tape in her pack or in her like medical bag at the aid station. So if we needed to, we could have patched anywhere that was chafing horribly and gotten her through. Sure. Uh, so I think about just thinking about how stuff is going to. And feel. I do think, I mean, that's always a people assume that, you know, I guess we all assume that the only way to train then is to do, you must do the 15 hour run to prepare or the 24 hour run to prepare. For do the not do that. Uh, but I, I think you learn a lot of that by training consistently, because if you're using that pack for a week, you know, one of your higher mileage weeks, then, you know, you maybe do a 20 mile run and then a 10 mile run back to back on a Saturday, Sunday. For sure. I would imagine you start seeing stuff, you know, and like you say, you're ready for the inevitable that something food doesn't agree with you or pack doesn't agree with you or whichever. Yeah. And I think even that's why I started kind of using my pack on every run now. I almost always run with it just so I, I can kind of keep getting used to it and keep being used to it. There's so even no surprises. if it's a 60 minute run, like sure, I'll wear the pack. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the other thing that we realized uh, is even if you don't think you're going to be out all night, uh, having a good headlamp strategy for the time you expect to be out plus some, I think is very important. I think you always want to have it for reserve whether it's another light or not yeah we were just uh, or i guess i was just at the the same time you were doing this i was at the 24 hours of one of the i think it's the, still the biggest in north america uh it's the chico 24 hours of summer solstice and so i actually hadn't raced at night in years 10 years plus probably uh so it, it's definitely you want to test those lights if you want to do well at night and, and not have issues. It's definitely how they're positioned on you. And I think biking probably even more so because of the speed, oh, absolutely. but yeah, to get the light positioned right. And the, my battery was flopping around my armpit <laughs> by the time the way I had it sort of hanging off the helmet. Uh, so yeah, it was definitely, but then getting them, it took a whole lot to get everything aimed right. And yeah, 
yeah so definitely re- having reserve is a good idea now is there a, a brand that you guys use that lasts for a long time or how do you make a light last all night so we do really like the phoenix lights it's f-e-n-i-x i think um i will say they're not they're not super long lasting so we actually were carrying two each that was how we got through the night but they actually do sell separate batteries and i think we had borrowed headlamps sort of at the last minute because we suddenly realized that we did not have the appropriate headlamps and had to kind of stri- like figure that out in the last week. So that was what we did wrong. We should have had that dialed way sure. before. And I think um, that's good honesty, right? I think everyone assumes that it's always perfect, but I think even the most pro person ends up with some of this, you know, thou shall not use new equipment or new tactics. Uh, you yeah. sort of have to evolve with it, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, I think if I was doing another race like this, I think my goal is going to be to get another battery for the Phoenix so I can just flip the batteries instead of It's a little carrying, lighter, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of carrying two. It's not too bad to change over. No. I think you could probably do it in the dark. Yeah, it's a little it's a little terrifying, and I think even with all of that said, I'd probably still carry maybe just like an ultra light, like a, a key light. ring kind of pen light. Or your to... phone, if you. I don't know if you guys are running with your phone. I ran or not, mine, but... but Karen didn't run hers. Yeah, and then you have redundancy between each other. It's doubtful the two lights would go at the same time. I guess for sure. Did they go? Um, not. No, we switched before they went. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, we switched at like a mid aid station. So we kind of avoided having to run in the dark or try to figure that uh, that out in the dark. So that was your headlamp. Do you have anything else on nighttime? Really just knowing that it's going to be a little slower and that that's okay. And I think hopeful that uh, as did you find that as the sun started coming out, there was new hope and and any motivational changes? You know, yes and no. Like certainly because yes, it's lighter. That's very exciting. We're getting closer to the end, but also no, because the goal had been originally to basically finish in the dark or finish right as the sun was coming up. So it was a very like... It was also, we're not there. It was this very visual reminder that we were not on like the like mm-hmm. a goal pace we'll okay. say so <laughs> pros and cons but i think you know we reframed it pretty good we saw the sun coming up we sort of acknowledged how pretty it was oh actually my one psa about headlamps if you're in a race where there aren't that many people around and you are in sort of open areas oh my gosh i had a couple of minutes where i was waiting for karen and her other pacer to come in and there was no one around me and i was just standing on the trail and i just turned the headlamp off and just looked up at the stars and it was honestly just the most beautiful peaceful thing i've ever seen it was so nice and it was such a good reminder of like why we're there and what makes it so special hmm. so i think you know i know you're going for a time but there's always time for like a 30 second well that's funny i wonder if it was at a similar moment where we were both gazing Aww. into the sky on that particular saturday night uh but i was at a much busier again most popular so there was i don't know how many people would be on the course at once but let's say you know hundreds uh, approaching maybe not approaching a thousand but hundreds would be on the course at once this event had i think maybe three thousand or or three and a half Uh, so it's a lot of people around a campsite uh but it's pretty cool to just stand whether you're in the middle of the forest or you know off to the side at the staging area just the lights you know going randomly through the forest and yeah Mm -hmm. just sort of take that in too right it's once you're out there it's it's pretty cool and pretty unique to be out with that number of people and lights racing around the forest wait was this during your 3 a.m lap yeah oh babe we totally were doing that at the same time Well, don't call me babe i guess but there you go (laughs) i i got the i did that like right around midnight pacific time that's so cute oh look at us 
Yeah, I guess that's a little mopey all around, isn't it? Yeah, there you go. Uh, anyway, okay, on to my last point about these bigger races. If you're bringing crew with you or if you are someone who's crewing for someone or uh, just supporting a, a friend, a spouse, a partner, whatever, uh, the first thing that we continue to learn and remember every time is the put your own oxygen mask on first. Like when I looked at the pro setups, these were the people that had like the jet boils out and were making coffee for themselves and, you know, were eating and drinking and laughing and partying and were just generally in like good moods all day because they were clearly just staying on top of their own stuff in addition to being, you know, fully present and fully on board with their athletes' needs. But it's one of those you just can't take care of your like your athlete very well if you're dehydrated if you're hungry and it gets even more so if you're actually pacing but mm -hmm. even just for crewing well and the athletes get grumpy and you, yeah. you know you don't want to be grumpy you want to have perspective exactly yeah like if you're grumpy and then your athletes have something grumpy at you it's not a great situation and you are trying not to make mistakes like you it's it's a weird thing it's one of those hurry up and wait jobs mm -hmm. where it's easy to make a mistake because you sort of get lulled into this we've been sitting at in the middle of nowhere you know you're mm -hmm. you're gazing at stars and stuff like this for five hours plus you don't see anyone you don't have to do anything you have all the time in the world to be ready and then all of a sudden someone comes screaming in you know expecting you to have everything that you didn't even know you needed to have ready so it's very much being ready for anything and trying to think through contingencies and so yeah being alert yeah uh the other thought was just being prepared for any weather i know peter has this holy crap bag of raincoats and puffy coats and all that. And luckily we did not need any of those, but it was definitely nice to have pants to throw on. Uh, bugs got pretty bad at one point. Um, just thinking through all of the eventualities that could make your day suck, being cold, it being buggy, being wet. Like there's just so many things that very quickly take your day from this fun adventure and like moment where you can actually be really helpful to someone else to just you are miserable you hate everyone you hate your life you hate this race you hate your your friend that you're supporting sure and you are in nature and here you're at altitude with heat but then you know in the mountains at night it gets cold or the desert gets cold i mean most places when the sun goes out it gets chillier and if you're just standing outside we don't do that a lot right we're usually mm -hmm. indoors at night so it's pretty quick when you're not doing anything outdoors to start getting cold i've froze at many a bike race where <laughs> it wouldn't it didn't seem like it should have been cold but when you stand around you know sort of not moving all day it certainly gets that way yeah and i will add on the note of standing around at night like you can definitely sleep at these things i would say i saw probably 50 percent of people in aid stations taking a nap at some point and it's scary because you're like always afraid that you're going to miss your runner. But I mean, if you know your runner's not going to come through for four hours, even even if they have the best situation possible, take a nap. And you can maybe, you know, you guys had a lot of different people there helping you out. But, you know, you maybe make a pact with someone yeah. else who's going to grab some shut eye to wake you up or something. Um, but, yeah, maybe you need to bring a watch with an alarm and, and a phone with an alarm and double up on your alarms and check the AM, PM. My PSA, though, is uh, just don't wait in the parking lot of the previous aid station to nap. Go to the next oh, one. Oh, yeah. No, you got to get set you up. you got to get sure. set up. Otherwise, like you're not going to really sleep well because you're going to be thinking about getting to the next one. And honestly, always assume that getting to the aid station is going to take longer because you know, a lot of these races are on dirt back roads or like windy, twisty things, or, you know, it, the course cuts through trails, but the roads are much further around. So you could be driving for a really long time before you actually get 
parked in like two B aid stations. So and we have a do we have a post or is that post on crewing on like Canadian? Oh, uh, we have a post. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll maybe link we'll that link. in the show notes for sure. We will. And I think the last thing I'll say about crewing is just uh, give friends and family who aren't crewing specific directives if they need it. Some people are perfectly content to just wander around the race and be supportive and stuff, but uh, for people who have parents coming to the race or something like that, uh, it's really helpful if you can just kind of give them a few things to do or places to be at or ask them to you know cheer a certain way or whatever it just kind of gives them a little bit of and it sounds like you're making up jobs is that what you're doing 100 percent. yeah so it's maybe you know go get a split for me at this road crossing or you know send them somewhere yeah, or, or just exactly. even you know if you need food it gets back to you know maybe you do need a coffee and they could go get you a coffee uh if, you know if they offer yeah like whether yeah whether you're the pacer or the runner or the rider um if people are new to and even if people are new to racing and think they're just going to wander around i think it's really helpful to give them here's a good place to watch here's like what i would do here's you know where i'd love you to be because uh, it gets really confusing and stressful at races when everyone seems to be running around around you. Volunteers are focusing on the racers. It's going to be hard to get answers from anyone about where to do or like sure. how to handle it. So, Okay. And I think it's okay to say, you know, we're going to try and keep this like a pretty low stress area here when they come in. So if you're, you're going to watch, maybe just stand back a little bit here mm-hmm. or where to stand or where to go. Yep. Uh, because you also want to be, you know, make sure they're not in the way as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's good. The only other thing that I had then was checklists. You know, you didn't really talk a lot about checklists, but I know I've had especially self-supported clients who are maybe coming into these aid stations and having drop bags. I don't know if that was a factor at this race or not. You could do drop bags. Where they would even leave a checklist for themselves on, you know, the things that they were, you know, clean your glasses, put your sunscreen on, whatever you're doing. Oh, that is so smart. Uh, and, and I think you did sort of similar on your hundred miler, but like some sort of rough, you know, the person's supposed to have this with them, you know, see if their packs is the pack filled. Uh, so yeah, we had like a checklist to do while we were waiting, uh, so that we knew we were ready with enough stuff. And then, yeah, when you come in, I think that's, I think that was a good, good tip. That was one of our top unbound finishers had that sort of suggestion. I like that a lot. Yeah, especially, and it gets even more pertinent during a bike race when things are happening a bit faster, right? Because a a cyclist can't, you can't walk out of an aid station with a cyclist. They're riding away. Uh, You know, you can kind of walk out with your racer a little bit or through with your racer Mm -hmm. at something like Western States. Uh, And there's a point where you have to stop, but like you can get a little bit further. You've got a little bit more time. It's a little slower pace. Cycling, not so much. You need to be a bit more dialed. So definitely the checklist is a great one. Um, and the last thing before we wrap this up, um, we talked about altitude a couple weeks ago, and this race starts at altitude uh, with a burly climb. And I would actually say what I noticed, because I knew I knew a few of the top racers didn't get to spend a ton of time at altitude before the race. Now, some of them do the altitude tent. They, you know, a lot of them have like a plan for it. But even the the people towards the back, I would say the big thing I noticed was it was kind of attitude over altitude, which we talked about in that episode. Um, if you go into altitude thinking it's going to wreck you and it, you're terrified and you're convinced that it's going to just make you feel like absolute garbage, you're going to feel like absolute garbage. Um, but I mean, in this case, like you're going uphill anyway. Like it's going to suck no matter what. So if you can kind of just go in and, and just tell yourself that it's the uphill that's making it tough, not the altitude, I think you're in much better shape. For sure. And this one was more of a medium altitude, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it's still there and, and people will, you know, you'll feel it, I think. But I think the other concept is, you know, it's a hundred mile race. So you probably want to be careful overpacing regardless in that first piece. And, and like a lot of races, they make it challenging by pointing you straight uphill and saying go with all your friends. Uh, but that's that's the idea. I think, like you say, it's sort of having a plan for it and dealing with it more than any magical adaptation, especially for the quote unquote normal folks, right, who don't have tents or altitude training camps. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we're going to link to a bunch of stuff in the show notes. We actually just did a bunch of things on summer heat and even some humidity, which was not a factor in this race, but is a factor in many races uh, that are up on consummateathlete.com. And of course, if you have any more questions about uh, whether it's Western States or Leadville coming up or anything like that, uh, please hit us up over at consummateathlete.com on the contact page or just send us a slide into our DMs over on Instagram at consummateathletes. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox.